Cochrane for all. Better evidence for better health decisions. Hello everyone, welcome back to Cochrane for All. I'm here with Margaret McCartney, GP, who's giving a keynote tomorrow. I am, yes, it is tomorrow, tomorrow, yes. Yeah, Yeah, really looking forward to that. So you're a GP based in Glasgow, what's that like? It's wonderful, it is actually. Um, So I I absolutely love my job. I um, I work and live quite close to each other um, and it is just a joy. Um, The best bit is knowing people over a long period of time. It is just so um, so enriching and such good fun, and it sounds really soppy, but actually it's lovely. It's just a lovely thing to look after people for a long time, and and it makes it easier for me because um, because things fit in, things make sense. You don't have to pick up at the beginning every time with people, and also it makes it easier for me because um, if <laughs> on the many occasions when I am imperfect or not as good as I should be, people are willing to forgive things I think better because they see you in the whole rather than in one stress day where you didn't go into things in as much detail as you would like to or should have done. So it makes it easier for me, I suppose, on two levels. Um, but it's very rewarding. I mean, it is very hard work. I think I work half time. I would struggle, I think, to work full time. It takes me more or less full time hours to do a half time job, but. Um, it is, it is a fantastic job and I, and I would recommend it but it is very hard work in, in very many different ways probably emotionally hard work I would say is the hardest bit of all mm. and we're here at the Cochrane Colloquium and this is the kind of one of the key organisations in this country in terms of evidence-based medicine um, do you think your practice is evidence-based and what does that mean to you and your patients? Well, that's kind of the killer question, isn't it? You know, are you any good or not is really, is really what you're asking and that's fine. Um, and the honest answer, I think, I think probably sometimes, I think um, hopefully most of the time, sometimes evidence just doesn't exist. So if you have a patient with three, four or five different conditions and they're on a lot of medication, well, where's the evidence about what you should do for that or not? You talk about um, prolonged QT intervals and some drugs potentially causing that off. You know how big is the risk? Is it what kind of risk is it? What does that mean in in um, in basic terms, even for what I'm prescribing and what I'm what I'm offering to to the person beside me? So I think it's um, a lot of the time there isn't very good quality evidence, and we're guddling around. We're we're trying to make the most of, of what we have, make the best of what we have in, in these circumstances. So I think it's it's very difficult a lot of the time. But my job is not to force people to do what um, evidence says is most likely to work. My job is to make rational offers to people of what their options could be. And then it's up to having a conversation to decide what the best fit for that person is at that particular time. Um, So I think my job is there to offer the best available evidence and it's up to the person or the patient to decide what they would like to do with that. And, And that is often quite difficult, particularly when the information isn't very clear or it isn't very certain, and when there's lots of gaps in the evidence as well. But general practice is messy by default, you know, and people don't tend to come in with one problem, they tend to come in with often three or four things that they want to discuss or to clarify or to ask questions about. Um, and a lot of the time I will have to go away and look up things, I will have to look up things as I'm sitting. As, you know, When I started in general practice it seemed like a mark of shame to look something up, that seemed to be something terrible to do. But now I don't know how I would manage without it. I'm on the computer a lot to to try and answer queries or to try and direct myself and the patient um, towards the best available resource to look up uncertainties, for example. So I think I'm not as evidence-based as I would like to be. I suppose I could put it like that. Okay. yeah, absolutely. And I think if you talk to the public about evidence-based medicine and clinicians using 
research to inform their practice most people just say yeah well doesn't that already happen you know and that's what people used to say like 30 years ago when I first started working in EBM we were training you know health professionals and the patient said well presumably they already do that don't they and you know it's not recognised that there's a big gap between the research and the practice yeah. do you think in the last kind of 20 or 30 years that gap has closed do you think EBM has had an impact in that sense I certainly think EBM's had an impact in that it's now I think socially unacceptable it's a bit like drink driving it's no longer socially acceptable to drink drive well it's no longer medically acceptable to do things without evidence or to pretend that, that you are so I think that I think that has happened there it's only credible to be practicing with evidence but I suppose there are big problems with the evidence you know so many trials don't get published so many trials are not asking the questions that are important to patients so many trials and um, the participants in them don't represent the people who were meant to be offering um, stuff to um, guidelines um, that are meant to be based on evidence aren't always reflecting the kind of um, quantity of problems and types of problems that the patients that I'm looking after have or the polypharmacy um, that we're prescribing so I think yes (laughs) but also no yeah and I guess one of the key kind of thoughts I have about evidence and clinicians from a kind of public perspective is that you know, most practice is not evidence-based in the UK. I work in mental health, and there's been a lot of studies that look at how evidence-based mental health practice is. And um, we have some good evidence in some areas, but getting it into practice, implementing that, is a real problem. So given that evidence, given that medicine isn't evidence-based, or as evidence-based as it could be, should, are we right to be trusting our doctors, our health professionals, um, well, <laughs> it depends what you're trusting your doctors or health professionals with. So it may be that you can't do something that's evidence-based because the resource isn't there to do it or it's not being implemented. You know, even stuff like cognitive therapy, you could say it's meant to be evidence-based. Well, the original trials, they were like 12 one-hour sessions with a clinical psychologist, I think I'm right in saying, and that's been diluted out now to something that's not quite the same as was being offered in trials. And the reasons for that are multiple, aren't they? They're, they're to do with resources, they're to do with what can be managed, what capacity services have, how many staff they've got that are trained. And I kind of understand that um, I think honesty is imperative you know so you know and I've certainly done a lot of things that I've went back and said god I shouldn't have done that to the patient or I think I've done the wrong thing or you know um, and I think I suppose that that to me would indicate me trying to be deserving of trust I suppose me trying to behave in a way that means that if I accept that I don't know and I say I don't know then that's better than pretending that I do but you know, I don't know. I, I don't think trust is something that healthcare professionals should seek. I think it's something that should happen as a side effect of the way that you interpret and use evidence and try and try and negotiate your way through clinical practice, as it were. I'd, you know, because people that are trying to tell you to trust them, well, you never want to trust them, do you? Absolutely. No, I mean, I think that's the thing that I've really noticed about your work. I've seen you do a couple of talks in the past uh, and reading your BMJ work. I think it's about openness and honesty, and that's kind of something that I would love to see in more health professionals, that kind of attitude of, I don't know the right answer, I'm going to, let's work together on finding it and then make some shared decisions. All that stuff is quite scary, I think, you know, because you are um, essentially saying, it's it's more than just saying you don't know, it's also you're feeling a bit lost, you know. So much of people, so much of the suffering, I think, that people have when they've got chronic conditions um, is the unknown and what the future might hold and 
you know, and I don't have any great answers. I think, but a lot of the time, what what you're what you're saying to people is, I don't know really how to help, but I'm willing to be here. I'm willing to keep talking. I'm willing to do what I can. You know, and I see that particularly with our amazing district nurses, and our district nurses are just incredible. And they will go around and see people who have a life limited condition, who we know are probably going to die in the next while, and they'll go in and they will basically offer their 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 professional abilities they'll go in and a lot of the time they will just have conversations they'll just talk to people about stuff and through that they will find out what's important you know I hate these lists of questions you know these brand questions about you know what's important to you what's blah 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 you know actually talking to people and getting to know them you find all that important stuff out anyway as part of a natural relationship rather than a condensed sort of thing that's got to be done really quickly and you've got to have your ideas and your expectations and everything pinned down and what you want and what you don't want really fast instead I think what and I just admire our district nurses for this so much because they just exemplify professional abilities and that they are willing to go in and listen and hear and plan and make a commitment to see that person again as frequently as needed and I, I that's the kind of stuff that I think we should just cherish and how do you prove that works how where's the evidence for that you know how do you show that that's better than you know having a call centre where it's a different person that you speak to every time and I think so much of general practice is about relationships uh, it's impossible to understate how important that I think that is and it's not just relationships between doctors and patients it's also between different groups of professionals and it's so much easier when it's professionals that you know and you trust you've worked with for years their coffee cup sits beside your coffee cup in the staff cupboard and where all the coffee cups are and it's so difficult and different when people are disenfranchised from each other when people you know it's, is it this person's job or that person's job you know that the, the sense of team is really important you know um, Dennis Pierre Gray who's a long retired GP published a fantastic paper recently showing an association between longevity and continuity of care and I worry that um, we've become so transfixed on numbers um, you know from the quality and outcomes framework for statin prescribing for atrial fibrillation detection that we're missing something in plain sight which is the value of relationships between people. Haven't we really lost that particularly in the last 10 years isn't that so much worse than it was 10 years ago, my experience trying to get an appointment with the same yeah. GP is impossible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and because they're probably doing cholesterols and blood pressure in the under 40s, that Matt Hancock's app has said must be tested immediately with that um, nonsensical heart age tool. So, so and, and, and the first book that I wrote was called The Patient Paradox, and that's the title. It, it is, you know, the paradoxical situation where you're made into a patient when it can't really advantage you, and yet when you need to be a patient, you don't get the chance to be so. And, and the way to solve that should be through an evidence-based equitable NHS and I fear that so many conflicts of interest have crept in that have taken us away from that ideal and, and I think that we just need to uprise against that, we need to rebel against that and unfortunately so many doctors um, that I know have just given up and, and went to Australia or New Zealand where they feel as though they can practice the kind of medicine they want to and I am aware of so many of my colleagues in huge distress trying to provide good, good enough care to the patients they look after and having that huge moral distress that comes because they feel as though they're not doing their best they're not doing what they want to do and I think that is um, so hard and so difficult and, and, and I can see how that erodes so much of what you want to do your pride in the job, your morale, your feeling that you're doing your best for patients and I think um, everything crumbles if you don't have that Good luck with the keynote tomorrow. I know it's going to go down really well at this event, and I'm sure it will go down really well on Twitter as well. I'm just going to rewrite it now. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I've inspired you. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. Cochrane.
for all. Better evidence for better health decisions.